0: Everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One on One: Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to our Parsha series on Matan's One-on-One Podcasts. Today I'll be speaking with Matan lecturer Dr. Dina Sternberg about Parshat Save, specifically about Rashi's commentary on the Parsha. Dina, it's great to be here with you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's hear hear about Rashi.
1: Okay, well, I want to talk about Rashi's character, but I want to do it through the topic of the Kohanim, the priests, and how they were chosen to be the nation's representative, um, worshiping God in the temple. Um, Now, I'm not an expert on Rashi. I've learned him a bit, but I'm not an expert on Rashi. But the topic that interests me, and here Rashi comes in, is law and narrative uh, relations meaning how the law and the narrative, how they work together. Now, when I talk about law and narrative, um, there are two main issues in the law narrative. One of them is how does the narrative of the Tanakh deal with the laws? For example, if you have the stories of Shaul and David and Solomon, how do the laws regarding the king work together with the narratives of actually having kings? But that's not what I'm talking about. No, I'm talking now about the fact that the laws of the Torah are, repre- are presented to us through the narrative, through a story. Meaning we don't have a textbook or a law book. We have a storybook that has in it laws. And it's interesting because we'd expect the Torah to be a book of laws that God gave the people of Israel. But instead, we have, we're telling us a story of how the laws were given. But more surprisingly, we're also told the story of how the laws were formed. Or how the laws were changed.
0: So if, if I can think of an example from the story of the Exodus. So the example where all the halachot are given amidst the story of them leaving Mitzrayim, is that what sort of what you're getting at?
1: Well, I'm saying that we have two things. We have one is we get the Ten Commandments, right? So the story is everybody came to Sinai and they had to get organized and then they got a body of law. And the body of law was the Ten Commandments, okay? And then afterwards we have the body of law of parashat mishpatim, all the laws that they are given. So those are laws that you have a body of law, you have a text, Sefer Abrit or Luchot Abrit, and they're given, and we hear the story of how they're given. But what I'm talking now is something even more. Sometimes it sounds like the story is what causes the laws to become laws, so, if I'm not talking about Exodus, I'm talking, for example, in the book of the Midbar, we have the Midbar. We have the story of the daughters of Slovchad or we have Pesach Sheni, and then it sounds like the lawgiver changes the law or updates the law in according to the story. So, if we're talking about uh, the stories of Pesach Sheni and the daughters of Slovchad it sounds like a certain kind of update, refining of the laws. We're okay with that, but. In our Parsha, in Parsha Tetzaveh, we talk about the dedication of the Kohanim. And that's where it becomes interesting, because we're not talking only about updating the law or refining the law. We're talking about changing the law, or at least according to Rashi.
0: Okay, so what happens in this week's Parsha that you're speaking about specifically for all of us without a Tanakh open in front of us?
1: Okay, so we're in Parshat which comes after Parshat Rumah. In Parshat Rumah, we learned the laws of the Mishkan. And in Parshat we learned of the dedication of the Kohanim. Oh, a few extra details of the Mishkan, but especially about the dedication of the Kohanim, their clothes, who they are, which is Aaron and his sons. Now, supposedly, there's no problem. <laughs> Meaning, if you read the Torah um, in sequence... You see, we have we get the Torah at Har Sinai, and then Moshe goes up to Mount Sinai to get all kinds of extra laws. So he learns Parshad mishpatim, and then he learns parashat turman tetzveh, he learns of the mishkan, he learns about the kohanim. He comes down and he's about to give them the Torah, but there's a certain little detour because they've had the sin of the golden calf. But then he goes back to it, and then they make the mishkan, and everything's okay. So that... The way the text the way the text is presented, supposedly there's no problem. But Rashi does something really weird. <laughs> Rashi, it's not only Rashi. Rashi in accordance with Chazal, what he does is he says, Okay, we're rewriting the book. Like sometimes I feel that the way Rashi tells us of how the book of Schmutz is really supposed to be read is like when I had a, um, you know, every time I have a new child in the family, you feel like the whole, everything you knew about the family is just thrown up in the air, and yeah. then it, it falls down. It gets shaken down. out. It's, it's like it a sh-
0: tablecloth. You shake out the tablecloth, so then it can come back down on the table. Right, some exactly.
1: Time. So so when it comes down, it comes down differently. So Rashi sort of shakes up Sefer Shmot and he places it down differently than the way it's presented to us. Because the way we see it, again, Chet comes already after God commanded about the Mishkan and about the Kohanim. But Rashi tells us now the story is different. What happens is that Moshe goes up to Sinai, and then Bnei Israel do chetah egel, and then Moshe comes down, and only when he goes up back again, he learns about the Mishkan and he learns about the Kohanim. Now, as for the Mishkan, Rashi doesn't say this specifically, but this is how Nachman Alevavish understands him, and this is what it says in a lot of the midrashim that Rashi is based on. That according to Rashi, had Bnei Israel not sinned in the egel, they would not have gotten the Mishkan. Yeah. The Mishkan is a reaction to Chet and we can explain it in different ways. It comes to atone for Zegel. It comes to, as a certain compromise. Ah, you need something physical. You need something you can see. Fine, we'll give you the Mishkan. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, according to this, like, if Bnei Yisrael did not sin in Chet we would not have a Mishkan, maybe even a Mikdash. We would worship God in a totally different way. Now the second thing that Rashi says is that also the idea of the Kohanim, the sons of Aaron, came after Chet So, of course, he'd need to put Parshat Ruma and Tetzaveh after Chet But he also really explains that this stems from Chet because in Chet when the people made the golden calf, the tribe of Levi came. To punish those who are sinning, Moshe says to him, He says, "You are going to fill your hands or dedicate yourself to being,
0: God, be inaugurated, yeah, yeah, as as servants of God
1: and servants of God, because you did this." And and Rashi understands from here that this is when the Levim were chosen. To be um the servants of God, to be our representatives, mm-hmm. according to Rashi, and he writes this in a few places. The those who were supposed to worship God or supposed to be the ones sacrificing for the people of Israel were actually the firstborn, as we see in the story of Esau and Yaakov. The Rashi explains that Yaakov wanted to be the firstborn so that he'd get to be the one sacrificing, and Rashi says that at Matan Torah, those sacrificing were the firstborn, and he says. Different people were supposed to be worshiping God or being our representatives to worship God. And comes Chetah Egel, and maybe even the firstborns were part of the sin, and they're rejected. They're out of the game. We need to choose somebody else instead, the Levim who uh, walked up and and stood up for the task. They get to be now the tribe that worships God.
0: So if I understand, you're you're pointing, your first question, really, the main question, is this idea of, is God according to Rashi responding to what the people have done and 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 the response can also be new laws or new completely radical ideas the smaller question that underlies this is also this question of chronology right the ra- that that the specific point of how does the mishkan come in when did moshe go up to to har Sinai the luchot is also this question of chronology is the torah telling us things in their proper order or is the order being changed am i understanding that correctly and that's right. where rashi says nope that we don't have to preserve the chronology right he has to not preserve the chronology in order for his idea to to work
1: definitely which makes it even more radical
0: correct yes meaning
1: okay everybody knows you know everyone who grew up in the religious school system and learned rashi knows law and Mukdamu okay so rashi doesn't feel obligated to chronology Sometimes it's really logical not to be obligated to chronology. Sometimes we have flashbacks. Sometimes you can see that the dates don't work according to regular chronology, and that's okay. You know, that's really fine. There's a
0: a choice, the way that Torahs organized, and chronology is not always at the top of the choice. Exactly. Right.
1: The thing is that I'm not quite sure what is the egg and what is the chicken, meaning what came first? Rashi's decision to understand the choice of the Kohanim, t- and the building of the Mishkan to be a reaction to Chet And if so, you have to reorganize the text. Or did he really understand that the text wasn't in accordance to the sequence that it is in front of us, that the chronology was different? He understood that really the whole story of the Mishkan and the Kohanim came after Chet And once he understood that, he also understood that the Kohanim were chosen because of Chetegel. And he understood that the Mishkan came um, as a reaction to Chetegel, but it didn't scare him. It didn't worry him.
0: Mm -hmm. And so why does this concern you? I mean, where where does this take you? Why is this something that, that draws you in?
1: Okay, well, I find it very interesting because I think... Again, this might be part of, you know, the religious upbringing and what you hear a lot in the school system. There's a certain idea of God looked in the Torah and he created the world accordingly, right? And this idea of an everlasting Torah that preceded the world and will continue ever after. And this idea of like a truth, a non-changing eternal truth. And in this Con- this way of thinking, in this conceptual world, the idea of things being changed and not only updated or not only um, mm. refined, yeah. but radically changed, that it's very surprising. And especially it's surprising when when you read the text as a sequence, it wouldn't come up.
0: You're saying Rashi didn't have to go down that avenue. He, he could have easily... He commented something that was theologically simpler, but he doesn't even seem to be self-conscious about the fact that he's that he's rocking the boat.
1: Exactly. Meaning, if you can you can compare, because Ramban also dealt with this psukim, and Ramban says, okay, first there was Matan Torah, then Moshe learned about the Mishkan, and Moshe learned about the Kohanim, and then he came down, and then there was Cheta Egel. Ah, we have the stories of the Mishkan again? Okay, because we needed to uh, say... We haven't broken everything. We haven't uh, decided that we're not doing it. So we mm-hmm. had to say, yes, we're doing it anyway, even though you guys sinned. But the ideas were there before. Right. On one hand, you can just say, you know what? These are two different ways of looking at, at God's choice. Meaning these are two ways of how, if we just look, for example, at the, at the um, idea of the priests, we have in Judaism, this I learned from um, Dr. Mordechai Sabato, he says in Judaism, you have two uh, ways of looking of the way God decided to choose the people of Israel, or to choose Avram Avino, or to choose the Kohanim. There's a the theory that says, ah, people were chosen because they were chosen. God chose Avraham Avinu without telling us why he chose Avraham Avinu. He saw something about him. He, it was something intrinsic. It was something essential to who Avraham Avinu was. And that's why God chose him and doesn't feel the need to tell us why. And for the same reason, God also chose the priests. The sons of Aaron. Why? Because. That's the answer. Lama Kacha. Okay? And this is something intrinsic to the Kohanim and intrinsic to the people of Israel and intrinsic to Avram Avinu. And he doesn't need to explain himself. It's something like internal, essential. Right? That's one way of looking at it. That's why Avraham Avinu, no one told us why he was chosen. That's why the people of Israel were chosen, even though, you know what, they're not They We always. didn't
0: seem particularly worthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: And the Kohanim, you know what, also, they weren't... <laughs> the Levi might have been very worthy, but let's just say that Aaron the Kohen in the story of the sin of the calf, eh, he wasn't exactly, you know, the model person we would have chosen afterwards, okay? So that's what, that's what, uh, that's, a, that's a, it's more or less the way the Ramban is going. The priests were chosen before anything ever happened because the priests were chosen and that's it. And I think in, in, in a certain sense, that's something that we like to hear because it gives us confidence. If you don't know why you were chosen, you can't be banished and you can't be rejected because that's what God chose. He loves us. Why does he love us? Because he loves us. I don't know why, Mm -hmm. right? On the other hand, when Rashi comes and tells us, you know why the priests were chosen? Because they were part of Shevet Levi. And why was Shevet Levi chosen? Because they proved themselves worthy. God doesn't choose out of thin air just because that's what came out. But God um, rewards those who are worthy. So we need to explain why were the tribe of why were the tribe of Levi worthy? Here we have a place. It says mm-hmm. it even uses the words miluia dechem is the words of of the dedicating to priesthood. Yeah. So we know we it makes us feel good that good deeds are rewarded and that we have a reason. It also gives you a certain if it doesn't give you confidence at least at least it gives you some kind of pride. Ah, oh, I know. And then we can go back and start thinking, oh, so why was Avraham Avinu chosen? Okay, so he was chosen because he fought against the idols and the idol worshipers, or maybe because he was the first person who recognized God. Maybe it's because he started going to the land of Israel, and he, he started the lech lecha even before God gave him a lech lecha. We can give all kinds of different reasons, but we're looking for an explanation. We're looking to say, yes, we were chosen for a reason. We're good, right? Mm-hmm. It gives us a certain kind of confidence. Lots of us like to go around in the world feeling, you know, we're worthy. The only problem is that theologically, that's are also very dangerous. Because if you're chosen because you're worthy.
0: You have to be unchosen.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And if the firstborn were rejected because they were unworthy and they proved themselves wrong and they sinned, now it becomes dangerous. What will happen if the Kohanim sin? What will happen if the people of Israel sin? What will happen, etc.
0: And again, I'm, I'm trying to understand all sense. And why is this concerning? So you're saying why? Why is this the part of Rashi that that brings you to that that grabs your attention? So let's say, right? Rashi says here that the that they receive this position because they made themselves worthy because they showed up and did what they did at the sin of, of Chet Egel. And so where where is the the radical piece
1: in Rashi here? Because of the dangerous part of this theology, so even though it's very appealing on one hand, um, the dangerous part is, why can't somebody come now and say, okay, the people of Israel also sinned. They were rejected. Somebody else was chosen instead. Meaning, we don't want to go that far and give.
0: He's he's falling into the lion's den of of Christian polemics, basically. Exactly.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is surprising, So I want to say two things. First of all, I was really surprised because I know that Rashi lived in a Christian country. Towards the end of his days, he was in the Crusades. And it's surprising that Rashi would give such ammunition to the Christian theology. Isn't he worried? Isn't he scared that somebody might read Rashi and say, Hey, Rashi says that God can reject the chosen people or group and choose a different group. Like, wasn't he scared? So so here I'll bring in my father, Professor Daniel Lasker. He's an expert on Jewish Christian polemics. And he shows that even though there are all kinds of scholars who look in Rashi and, and pinprick, uh, look for where does Rashi say something anti-Christian? Where does Rashi say something that might be uh, polemical, etc.? Um, he says Rashi doesn't do it much. Mm -hmm. And even when he does it, it's not a deep theological argument. It doesn't seem like he's really interested in their theology and all the intricacies. It doesn't seem he's really worried about it. He's aware of it. Mm -hmm. But he's not worried about it. Other commentators were much more worried about it. Even the Rambam who didn't live in Christian country, he was worried about it. He had to make sure that everybody knows that this Torah can't be changed. It's an everlasting Torah. Nothing will change. God gave it once, and he doesn't change his mind. He has mind. to define
0: the halachic status of of Christians in general at that time, meaning yeah. the Rambam has overt uh, writings about about the Christian world.
1: Right. right. And he also deals where their theology, mm-hmm. One of the things was the idea that the Torah can change and that God can change his mind and stuff like that. And Rambam won't agree. And Rashi, so we can first of all say, I think this proves my father's theory, that Rashi doesn't really care.
0: Was he witness to polemics in that sense? Do we know that? Was he living in, in his time? Was he, again, you know, the Ramban obviously was in the thick of things. Was Rashi, was he,
1: So we, he lived during the time of that Renaissance? So a little bit later it started. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, but again, I'm not yeah. a, uh, not an expert on that.
0: He's sort of right before, right before all that eruption.
1: Exactly. And here, Rashi, so on one hand, you can see he's not worried about it. It doesn't scare him. He doesn't uh, care about it so much. Then, so we can see that he's not, he doesn't have this mira of picking his uh, commentary according to what might uh, play into somebody else's hands. And then you need to say, okay, but... What is good about this theology? What does it give us? Mm -hmm. And what I find fascinating, even though I myself find it hard to accept this idea, but what I find fascinating is this idea of a dialogue between God and man. Rashi here establishes this idea that the Torah, at least in the beginning, was still a little bit flexible. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily saying this about later on, but the Torah, at least in the beginning, was flexible. And God, when he decided to give Torah to man, he decided this Torah can be affected by man. He decided that he'll, his book is still being written throughout the process of giving it to the people of Israel. You can see it already in the fact that the Torah wasn't given all at once, right? It was given in portions. Mm-hmm. It was given a bit in Egypt and then a bit later in, uh, um, in Marah and then on Mount Sinai and then in Olamoed. And it's it's being given in portions, like God, gi- <laughs> God saving the, um, the the right to put in changes, mm-hmm. and he gives the law, and then he sees how it's received, and then he says, "Okay, so maybe we'll make it a little bit different." and And what Rashi is emphasizing is that the Torah is not only something given down to us by God, and you know, like thrown upon us and deal with it, but Torah was given within a dialogue,
0: and it was given also in response to the reality in which it was being it was being handed down to.
1: Exactly, maybe what turns the Torah into being eternal is not the fact that it's not changing, but actually the fact that it does, in a sense, listen to to the reality. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think Rashi would agree to change the Torah after it was given. Yeah, I, I think we need to be very careful, even though Rashi is willing to say to to show us what happened and to explain what happened as a certain dialogue, he would still agree that the Torah at a certain point was sealed. That's not going to be changed. But as a theology, I think it still opens up the idea of Torah Shebel Peh, the idea of an evolving Torah, the different ways of understanding it in different situations the reality giving us new uh, glasses with which we look at the torah it the it, it gives us a foundation for the idea of Torah torashabelpe as giving um a lot of weight for the way people understand things the way things are received and the way um so even if the torah won't change we still have a dialogue
0: Right. I think you're, you're taking it in the, in the specific context of law, perhaps, but I think that this has tremendous import also for a theological relationship with God, meaning just to take it on the spiritual level that God, you know, puts things in this world and we have a tremendous impact and how that manifests itself in the world and, and that it's a relationship that impacts both sides, which is something that's funny for us to say because we aren't able to see how it impacts God. But I agree with you that the Tanakh puts forth a cer- certain theology and, you know, Heschel is coming to mind and others where, you know, God reaches out to us and and we reach back out to God and that impacts both sides, ultimately, um, and that you're speaking more in the sense of law, which you're saying makes you uncomfortable because you're saying <laughs> later on, what does I mean theologically, right? That, that's what we could talk about, slow revelation or revelation in stages, which is something that has been taken to the Lechik world. Yeah. Um, whether it's through the Rambam or much more recently through other more liberal thinkers. But this idea that we impact what God puts out there in the world or how it's received and then eventually how he then continues to contact the world is something that echoes both on the halachic and the theological uh, and spiritual levels, I think.
1: That's true, yeah. When you think about it, when the Rambam you know, talks about the Torah as not being changeable Because God is not changeable. His God is really very aloof and far away and not one you can have a relationship with. Yeah. And when Rashi sort of brings God closer to us, it might make us feel uncomfortable because it sort of humanizes God, even though we don't want to say so. But Mm -hmm. the idea of change is human. Yeah. And if God, I I wouldn't say that God is human. I definitely wouldn't once um, a friend of mine asked, she said, how how do you deal with theology of God? I said, you know what, there's something I know maybe in my mind, there's a certain philosophical theology that I can think of, you know, intellectually. But I know that the Torah presents itself as something differently. Like God decided to give a Torah that presents a relationship with God as something close. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand this intellectually. I don't know how it works with a philosophical God. But I know that that's the way God chose to present his Torah. That's a way, that's an image that he decided to give to us. An image of someone we can have a dialogue with. I
0: mean, it comes through in so many places. You know, just think about Chazal's metaphor for all of Sheila Shirim. Okay. Meaning is that it's not just that we can have a dialogue, meaning it's someone that we, that reaches out to us, tries to woo us, you know, tries to, um, that bring us into the relationship. And there's this constant, you know, sort of, uh, running to and fro, where ultimately our, our desire is to meet somewhere out there um, in the fields. But I think that this idea, you know, is so is so broad-ranging, and ultimately, throughout the test of time, the god of the philosophers is not the god that was the popular one, meaning it speaks to the average believing person, not even Jew, okay, but certainly also— they're not looking for the the God of the philosophers, the God who, you know, put everything into place and then left it to be. Um, people are are trying to have a relationship with God. That's the word you're going to hear. Not, I'm trying to contact that thing very far away, but I'm trying to have a relationship with God. So, I think that the intuition of humans, in general, is something that we should take very seriously. Most people believe in their heart that they can have a dynamic relationship with God, which Which requires that two-way relational aspect that you're saying also comes through in Rash's commentary.
1: Yeah, I agree. You might say that God's reaction to man is deciding to portray him as a God who reacts to man.
0: Okay, wait, take me through that one second.
1: Meaning, God may be philosophical, and he may be aloof, and he may be distant, and whatever. But he knows that our need is -hmm. to have a God that we can have a relationship with.
0: And therefore he chooses to be that
1: god. And therefore or he, he chooses himself to like portray, that? portray himself as that god. Ah, okay. I don't know what he is <laughs> okay. really, but I know that that's what he decided to give us in yes.
0: the Torah. Yes. 100%. The god, you know, the god of uh I was just reading Heschel specifically and he in in the prophets and he was writing about how God so desperately wants contact with the world that he'll throw himself on prophets. Meaning that is the portrayal you get of God from the Nevi'im. Mm-hmm. They didn't want it. They weren't looking for it. They weren't trying to be prophets. But God says, I want to be involved in this world. So I'm going to put myself there and bring my message to the world because God so desperately wants that relationship. That, that's what he mm-hmm. portrays.
1: Okay, uh, of course you could also look at it differently. But yes, if it, I think in a sense, you, it's a very dangerous theologically to have this idea Both of a more human God and idea of our being able to to affect him. But maybe theologically and existentially, we need this much more.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website and write us any feedback. At podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.